Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Esther, chapters two and three. We uh, left off last week in Esther, chapter two, and we saw that Esther was now residing in the royal harem in Susa. And that she and her adoptive father, Mordecai, were actually already living in Susa at that time. Now we notice that the Bible gives us no implication that Esther was kidnapped or forced against her will or was she mistreated when she was sent to that harem. There's also no hint that this was the case for any of the other virgin girls. In fact, since what was really happening was that these girls were entering a beauty pageant with the winner becoming queen of Persia, it seems to me that most of the girls and their families would have considered this a great and unexpected opportunity and this is especially so when we consider that in, the, in Persian society there were seven aristocratic families from which the king always chose his queen. So for this customary marriage protocol to be set aside and instead any girl of any family, ethnicity, social status, in the enormous Persian Empire who was beautiful and charming enough she was to be given a chance to become royalty. Well that kind of thing was simply unheard of. Mordecai inexplicably told Esther that she was to say nothing of her Hebrew heritage. We aren't told the motive for this instruction but that there is also Nothing in the verses that would tell us that the Jews were seen as as lesser or undesirable or that it was going to create a, uh, a problem in the harem. Rather, it seems at this point in our story to be an otherwise non-issue. So let's pick up the plot of Esther from chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1090. Esther chapter 2, verse 10. Esther did not disclose her people or her family ties because Mordecai had instructed her not to tell anyone. Every day Mordecai would walk around in front of the courtyard of the harem's house in order to know how Esther was doing and what was happening to her. Each girl had her turn to appear before King Ahasuerus after she had undergone the full 12-month preparation period prescribed for the women, consisting of a six-month treatment with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and other cosmetics for women. Then, when the girl went in to see the king, whatever she wanted would be given to her as she went from the harem's house to the king's palace. 
She would go in the evening, and on the following day, she would return to another part of the harem's house and be under the care of Shashgaz, the king's officer in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless he was especially pleased with her and had summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Avichael, whom Mordecai had adopted as his own daughter, to appear before the king, she didn't ask for anything other than what Haggai, the king's officer in charge of the harem, advised. Yet Esther was admired by all who saw her. She was brought to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, Tevet, during the seventh year of his reign. The king liked Esther more than any of his wives. None of the other virgins obtained such favor and approval from him. So he put the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king then gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all of his officers and servants decreed a holiday for the provinces and distributed gifts worthy of a royal bounty. And when the girls would gather on other occasions, Mordecai would sit at the king's gate. Esther had not yet revealed her family ties or her people as Mordecai had ordered her. For Esther continued obeying what Mordecai told her to do, as she had when he was raising her. On one of the occasions, when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, two of the king's officers, Bigtan and Teresh, from the group in charge of the private entryways, became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. But Mordecai learned about it, and he told Esther the queen. Esther reported it to the king, crediting Mordecai. The matter was investigated, found to be true, and both were hanged on a stake. All this was recorded in the daily journal that was kept with the king. Verse 11 offers us a tantalizing remark that we shouldn't just pass by. We're told that every day Mordecai would walk around in front of the courtyard of the royal harem in order to try and keep track of how Esther was doing. The first question that enters my mind is, wouldn't he look suspicious? Even more... Was the royal harem actually located in a common place such that anyone could just walk by and gawk? I mean, the harem is where the king's private concubines and wives lived. It was customary that the children lived with their mothers in the harem. So security and a level of privacy would have been maintained and it's hard to imagine that just anyone could go hang out in front of the harem house without being questioned. How was Mordecai able to do it? I'm going to leave that hanging for just a few minutes and we'll take it up again. Beginning in verse 12, we get an overview of the interview procedure if you would, for the virgin girls. After going through some kind of a vetting process where it was Haggai who seems to have decided who could even remain in the contest and who was likely sent home, then each of the semifinalists had her turn with the cut before the king. 
But this didn't happen until all the remaining girls went through a 12-month beautification process that no doubt included lessons in court etiquette and other aristocratic refinements. Sometime after this 12-month period, a girl would be sent to be with the king overnight. She was allowed to ask for a gift, probably some kind of adornment, almost anything she wanted. This is yet further proof that these girls were not mistreated. They were given special favor. Verse 14 explains that she'd be shuttled in in the evening and then return the following day. But she didn't return to where she had been living the last several months. Rather, she would now reside in a different part of the harem house and would be placed under the care of a different supervisor. This supervisor's name was Shashgaz. It is clear from the Hebrew words used to describe this process that after a night in the king's bed, her status changed. She was now called a pilagesh. means concubine. It is clear that this is the case. And it's not hard to understand. Up to that night, she'd been a virgin. Now she wasn't. And in the ancient world, having intimate sexual relations under such circumstances brought certain commitments from the male with it. So what we have then is that in one section of the harem house, the virgin girls resided and were prepared to be auditioned. And then once auditioned, they became part of the king's stable of concubines. From this stable of concubines, the king would eventually choose his new wife. Let's be clear. This is not how it was usually done. This wasn't the standard Middle Eastern way of wife choosing for kings. Rather, this is the unique system that King Xerxes' royal court came up with for this particular situation. And in some ways, it's rather absurd and comical. But the last half of verse 14 tells us something rather sad. The girl who was now a concubine would never go to the king again unless he called for her by name. That is, whereas when the virgin girls were first taken to him, it was at the selection of Haggai, and each would eventually be given her opportunity, nonetheless, each virgin girl was a stranger to King Xerxes. But once he had spent a night with a girl, she was now officially his concubine. And from here forward, the king would decide when, if ever again, he wanted to see her. So we see here the cruelness of polygamy. Each girl was just a number. This is the downside of living in a royal harem. If the king had a large number of concubines, which most of them did, he only called for his favorites. The rest were forgotten, and they'd languish there for the rest of their lives. Even if they were somehow released, 
No man would want a former king's concubine for a wife because she wasn't a virgin. As part of a harem, she lived like a well-cared-for hamster in a cage. Or more aptly, as a living widow. She had no chance of having children unless she was impregnated by the king. And if the harem was a large one, those chances were pretty minimal. The concubine's relationship with the king was impersonal. Her children, if she ever had any, were the king's children. But they were of lesser status than the children of the king's several legal wives. Most of the time, the children of concubines lived with their mothers in the harem until they matured. But at some point, the king might take a liking to one or more of them. And once they became of age, they might be moved into the king's quarters. Verse 15 tells us that the inevitable night came for Esther's audition. And it is in this context that we first hear that her father's name was Avichail. And when Esther went in to be with King Xerxes, when asked what she might like as her personal gift of adornment, we're told she followed Haggai's advice and she asked for nothing. No doubt Haggai knew how to play this game. And he favored Esther. And so he went about helping her to win over the king. And equally obviously... Esther wanted to win this beauty contest and become the queen. Now there was something very special about Esther's bearing that she seemed to win over all she came in contact with. Even the girls she was competing against. It's clear throughout the story that her physical beauty was glorious. But it was her inner beauty that set her apart. How often I have stood just out of sight and watched my wife wisely counsel our young granddaughters as they stood before a mirror, primping and looking at themselves rather admiringly. And she reminds them that while indeed they are lovely to look at, God sees something else. Something far more important. He sees what matters most. What lies under that outer shell. He examines them for the beauty of their hearts and their minds and their thoughts and even their deeds. And she tells them that in this physical world of humanity on earth, there's going to be lots and lots of pretty girls. And in a sense, they're going to be competing with them and comparing themselves constantly against them. But what is going to separate them from the others, what's going to make for longer-lasting, much happier relationships is their inner beauty. Men being such visual, visual creatures, we may well be attracted by shapeliness and a pretty face at first, But it doesn't take too long before that kind of beauty wears off. And we're now looking for the next one. Unless there's an inner quality of 
loveliness that transcends and it draws us to her in a way that we can't so easily forget or escape. Esther was apparently the epitome of inner beauty. Which, by the way, is a choice. But she was also the recipient of outward beauty. That's a gift from God. So now in verse 16, we get a time marker. It's the tenth month of the year, in the seventh year of King Xerxes' reign, that Esther was called to go into the king. Notice once again the number seven. We have found this growing sequence of sevens in the book of Esther, which lets us know that the God of Israel is directly involved with this. It was in Xerxes' seventh year that Esther was elevated to queen of Persia. The number seven giving us a clue that the providence of God was working behind the scenes to get the timing of her coronation in perfect coordination with his plans. And by the way, in the Septuagint and in other Greek versions, we are told it was the twelfth month of the seventh year, as opposed to the tenth month of the seventh year that the king of Persia fell in love with Esther. Now let's back up to chapter 1. And we find that it was in Xerxes' third year that the incident with his wife, Queen Vashti, had occurred. So about four years then have passed since that time. Esther and many other girls have been part of that harem for going on four years. Preparing, waiting their turn. Getting used to the idea that their lives are changed forever. And when Esther is chosen by Xerxes as his new queen, where does that leave the rest of them? That hope for the ultimate prize is gone. Some girls no doubt have embraced the change, they, they, they enjoy the attention, the luxurious surroundings, their lives of leisure. Others are coming to realize the emptiness of soul, the lack of love, the lack of meaning in their lives that such constant decadence and separation from their families brings with it. The marriage with Esther included yet another banquet sponsored by the king, this one in Esther's honors. But those invited were mainly high government officials for the remainder of the Persian population so that they might join in the celebration. A holiday was declared and gifts, probably of food, were distributed. Now verse 19 explains that the harem girls would gather outdoors on occasions and when they did, Mordecai would go and sit at the king's gate. Now the reality is that this verse is not at all clear in its meaning and in fact the Septuagint version is quite different than the Hebrew version. It is not that there are additional Greek verses in this chapter. It is that the Greek Septuagint takes a bit different approach than the Hebrew. In reality, 
The Hebrew version translates most literally as when the virgins were assembled a second time. Mordecai sat at the palace gate. But for these same verses, which are verses 18 and 19, chapter 2, the Septuagint says, And the king made a banquet for all his friends and great men for seven days, and he highly celebrated the marriage of Esther, and he made a release to those who were under his dominion. But Mordecai, Mordecai served in the palace. So the Greek Septuagint says that a release was made for those under the king's dominion and that Mordecai served in the palace. A release is referring to prisoners who were being held because they were indebted to the king in some way. So as part of the wedding festivities, the king granted pardon for some who were in debt and either in prison or being used as slaves or bond servants. But there's also this matter of Mordecai serving in the palace. Now that's new information. The question before us is, can that be accurate? Was Mordecai actually some kind of appointed official? And why the difference between the Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible? Well, some believe that the Septuagint only added information to make it clear what seems to be implied in the Hebrew version. Mordecai held some kind of official government position in Susa. We discussed earlier how he managed to regularly come to the courtyard of the royal harem and yet not find himself being questioned or being run off or even being arrested. Now we find him, in the Hebrew version, sitting at the king's gate again. There is little doubt that this passage about him sitting at the king's gate is not so much reporting on Mordecai's physical whereabouts. Rather, it is stating his official position as a member of the royal court. See, here's the thing. Susa had a royal area or compound that was off limits to commoners unless they were invited. The king's gate was a dedicated gate for the king and his family and his entourage to use. And no doubt it was where official court cases were settled as was customary in that era. At the king's gate invited litigants would come for justice and they would stand before an official who sat at the gate. Only officials were allowed to sit. Everybody else had a stand before them as a sign of respect for their office. Some scholars have gone so far as to suggest that Mordecai was a judge or even a palace spy, although that's probably taking matters a little too far. Nonetheless, Mordecai seems to have had access to places that others couldn't normally go. And since in the order of the narrative, his sitting at the king's gate comes after Esther was crowned queen, it might just be that with her new royal influence, she had arranged for Mordecai to be further elevated in his position in the government. As we discussed in our last lesson, the accompanying 
power and privilege and influence that comes with being a family member of the queen is not to be understated. In fact, I maintain that this plays a pivotal role and we probably have just seen an example of it with Mordecai. Now verse 20 explains that even now as queen of Persia and after four years having passed since she had originally joined the harem, Esther hadn't revealed that she was a Jew. And it really doesn't appear that Esther necessarily understood why it had to be that way. Rather, as says the verse, Esther simply continued obeying what Mordecai had told her to do. This should not be seen as intrigue. Rather, it's just a further statement of Esther's sterling character and unwavering allegiance to Mordecai. See, by Middle Eastern and Hebrew custom, because she was now legally married, and by the way, there's no challenge, even by the rabbis, that this was anything but a legal marriage to the king, then under those terms, she was no longer under Mordecai's authority. She did not have to obey him. But even more, it's unimaginable that anyone in authority, and especially not the king, must have even asked her about her people or her race. Because had they, there's no way she could simply have refused to tell them. It's either that race... Rather, it's, it's rather that race and ethnicity simply didn't matter yet. But then something happens on one of the occasions that Mordecai was at the king's gate. Two of the king's closest officials, Bigton and Teresh, were overheard conspiring to murder King Xerxes. In fact, other Jewish documents claim that Bigton and Teresh were gate guards, which explains why they were at the king's gate. It was common that a king would be assassinated by insiders. And in fact, that is what seems to have eventually happened to Xerxes. Mordecai immediately contacted Esther, who reported the conspiracy to the king, giving Mordecai the credit for his fine detective work. The matter was proved to be true, and the two gate guards were executed. The verses say they were impaled on a stake, which there's no reason to doubt, because doing so was just a common thing. However, the way it worked was that a criminal would first be executed, then his corpse was impaled on a stake in a public place as a warning to those who might try the same thing and as a public humiliation to his family. Let's move on to chapter 3 of Esther. Esther chapter 3. Page 1091 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus began to single out Haman, the son of Hamdata, the uh, Agagi, Agagite, for advancement. Eventually, he gave him precedence over his 
fellow officers. All the king's servants at the king's gate would kneel and bow before Haman, because the king had ordered so. But Mordecai would neither kneel nor bow down to him. The king's servants at the king's gates asked Mordecai, why don't you obey the king's order? But after they had confronted him a number of times without his paying attention to them, they told Haman in order to find out whether Mordecai's explanation that he was a Jew would suffice to justify his behavior. Haman was furious when he saw that Mordecai was not kneeling and bowing down to him. However, on learning what people Mordecai belonged to, it seemed to him a waste to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Rather, he decided to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of Akashverosh's kingdom. So in the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus, they began throwing poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman every day and every month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, There is a peculiar people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws. It doesn't benefit the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, have a decree written for their destruction, and I will hand over 330 tons of silver to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. The king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, the son of Hamdata, the Agagi, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, and the people too to do with as seems good to you. The king's secretaries were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. They wrote down all of Haman's orders to the king's army commanders and governors in all the provinces and to uh, to the officials of every people, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language. Everything was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by courier to all the royal provinces to destroy, kill, and exterminate all Jews, from young to old, including small children and women, on a specific day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to seize their goods as plunder. A copy of the document to be issued as a decree in every province was to be publicly proclaimed to all the peoples so that they would be ready for that day. At the king's orders, the runners went out quickly and the decree was issued in Shushan, the capital. Then the king and Haman sat down for a drink together, but the city of Shushan was thrown into confusion. Now this chapter has substantial has a substantial Greek addition to it which is added in between verses 13 and a 14 and 14 what this amount this addition amounts to is is that it's the contents of the king's decree to commit government sanctioned genocide upon all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Here is that edition, as read from the Jerusalem Bible. Remember, this starts after verse 13 in the Hebrew Bible. The text of the letter was as follows. The great king, Ahasuerus, 
to the governors of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia and to their subordinate district commissioners. Being placed in authority over many nations and ruling the whole world, I have resolved never to be carried away by the insolence of power, but always to rule with moderation and clemency, so as to assure for my subjects a life ever free from storms and offering my kingdom the benefits of civilization and free transit from end to end to restore that peace which all men desire." In consultation with our advisors as to how this aims to be effected, we have been informed by one of them, eminent among us for his prudence and well-proved for his unfailing devotion and unshakable trustworthiness, and in rank second only to our majesty, Haman by name, that there is mingled among all the tribes of the earth a certain ill-disposed people, opposed by its laws to every other nation, continually defying the royal ordinances in such a way as to obstruct that form of government assured by us to the general good. Considering, therefore, that this people, unique of its kind, is in complete opposition to all mankind, from which it differs by its outlandish system of laws, that it is hostile to our interests and that it commits the most heinous crimes to the point of endangering the stability of the realm. We command that the people designated to you in the letters written by Haman, appointed to watch over our interests and a second father to us, are all, including women and children, to be destroyed, root and branch, by the swords of their enemies, without pity, without mercy, on the fourteenth day of the twelfth month, Adar, of the present year. So, that these past and present malcontents being in one day forcibly thrown down to Hades, our government may henceforth enjoy perpetual stability and peace. That could have been on the news last night, couldn't it? Think about it. It wouldn't surprise me that when the Antichrist comes, he may just reach right into this and pull this straight out because it would work today. Let's summarize where we are at this point as we see our story of Esther take this sudden, dangerous, and dark turn. Up to now, the story has been a frivolous one. It's mostly about banquets, drunken parties, the inner workings of the palace that revolves around the buffoonery of King Xerxes to paint himself into corners and then the expertise of his royal advisors to try to extricate him. And the turning of small personal matters into huge national concerns all due to the inflated self-importance of the Persian ruling class. Now as I hope you're now able to see, even the matter of all the most beautiful virgins of the empire being called to Susa, also called Shushan, for a sort of Miss Persia beauty contest, with the winner becoming the new queen of Persia? Well, this was hardly a terrible thing that, as so many misguided movies on the subject depict, involved Persian guards kicking in the doors of homes and terrorizing families and kidnapping the prettiest girls in every town and village in the empire and then holding them against their will 
in the royal harem in Susa? Rather, to this point, our story more resembles Cinderella. Since never before in Persian history had every common virgin girl in the empire been given an opportunity to marry a king and become a queen. This honor, up to now, had been reserved only for members of seven aristocratic Persian families. So, for the most part, this incident would have been perceived as an incredibly desirable opportunity for the eligible girls and their families as wealth and status and a lavish life for the entire family could be theirs if the king chose their daughter. Another thing that we have discovered is that while Mordecai and Esther see themselves as Jews and they identify themselves as Jews, technically, they're of the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, the genealogy given from Mordecai in chapter 2 was meant to document and confirm that he was of the same royal family line of Benjamin, the line of Kish, as was King Saul. Thus, in our story, Mordecai at first seems like some kind of an unofficial leader of the Jews in the state of uh, in the city rather of Susa, even though it's not stated. But by the end of chapter two, it's pretty clear that even before Esther became queen, he held some kind of official position in the Persian government. And then after she became queen, that position seems to have become even a little more important. Now as regards Esther and Mordecai's Jewishness, to this point in the story, their ethnicity plays no role. There is no display of any kind of big bigotry or intolerance of Jews and in fact Jews seem to be in as much harmony in Persian society as any of the other scores of ethnicities that made up the multicultural media Persian empire. There is no restriction to race or culture of the pretty virgin girls who can vie for queen. The only hint that we get that the Jews might have been seen a little differently by some in the empire was Mordecai's emphatic instruction to Esther that she is not to reveal her attachment to the Jewish people. She doesn't seem to know why Mordecai insists on this, and as readers, we haven't had it we haven't been informed of it either. And of course, we see God's guiding hand, even if he's not mentioned at all. And just so we can know that the Lord is orchestrating everything, we have this long string of the number seven appearing throughout the passages of Esther. From the number of days of the banquets to the year in which the king married Esther, this profusion of sevens makes it clear that Jehovah is in control of events, whether those events involve Hebrews or Gentiles. But in the end, it's always about the Lord's relationship with and concern for His chosen people. Always. Chapter 3 begins to introduce us to some complexities that are just under the surface. 
And the first complexity appears in verse 1. Here, a new character appears who's going to be central to the remainder of our story. He's the villain, Haman. No boos, no hisses? There you go. Get you in the spirit for our Purim party. Now, this complexity I'm speaking of is that it is Haman's identity. His identity is different in the Hebrew Bible than it is in the Septuagint, the Bible that was translated into Greek about 250 B.C. While the Hebrew Bible identifies Haman as the son of Hamdata the Agagite, the Septuagint identifies him as Haman, the son of Amadates, the Bugean. Another ancient Septuagint manuscript says Haman, the son of Amadis, the Macedonian. Now we're going to have to speculate a little bit about the reason for these differences. But I think the reasoning behind it is fairly straightforward. While to a Hebrew audience, the term Agagite would make some connections for them, it wouldn't make much sense to the Greeks or to the Romans. See, Agagite was not an official or a known ethnicity among Gentiles at this time and probably only lightly known at best among those diaspora Jews who by now, by the time of the Roman Empire especially, had become greatly disconnected from their homeland. Let's explore this a little bit because it has everything to do with the hostility between Mordecai and Haman that would erupt and mostly because Mordecai instigated it. That little stinker. The key is that an Agagite means this person is an Amalekite. Agag is mentioned in 1 Samuel 15 in a way that turns out to be connected to the story of Esther. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 5-11, through 11, it says this, Shaul, King Saul, arrived at the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go away, withdraw, leave your homes there with the Amalekites. Otherwise, I might destroy you along with them, even though you were kind to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites went away from among the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked Amalek, starting at Havlah and continuing towards Shur at the border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However, Saul and the people spared Agag, along with the best of the sheep and the cattle, and even the second best, and also the lambs, and everything that was good. They weren't inclined to destroy these things, but everything that was worthless or weak, they completely destroyed. Then the word of Adonai came to Shmuel, Samuel. I regret setting up Saul as king because he has turned back from following me and he hasn't obeyed my orders. This made Samuel very sad so that he cried to Adonai all night. Now, what orders didn't King Saul obey? 
such that this eventually led to him being removed as Israel's king by God. It had to do with not dealing with Amalek as the Lord had long ago said Israel was to do. Early in the Torah, we read about Amalek. In Exodus 17, 8-16, we read this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us. Go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with God's staff in my hand. You remembering this? Joshua did as Moses had told him and he fought with Amalek. And then Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. When Moses raised his hand, Israel prevailed. When he let it down, Amalek prevailed. However, Moses' hands grew heavy. So they took a stone, they put it under him, and he sat on it. Aharon, Aaron, and Hur held up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other, so that his hands stayed steady until sunset. Then Joshua defeated Amalek, putting their people to the sword. Adonai said to Moses, Write this in a book to be remembered. Tell it to Joshua. I will completely blot out any memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, called it uh, Adonai Nisi. Ado is my banner. And he said, Because their hand was against the throne of Yah, Adonai will fight Amalek generation after generation. So Amalek was going to be God's and Israel's arch enemy forever. God instructed Israel to wipe them out completely. But those orders were never followed. Agag was a king of Amalek, and now Haman is called an Agagite, which is either saying that he indeed is an actual descendant of Agag, and thus a hereditary Amalekite, or that he was acting in the spirit of Amalek. In the end, it doesn't really matter which one was the actual case. So if we're paying attention, boy, this is important. When we learn that Haman is an Agagite, he's an Amalekite, then we know it's his very nature to be against God's people, Israel. But even more, while all Hebrews would have been aware of this to one level or another, we find that those who are of the tribe of Benjamin and who are especially of the royal line of King Saul, now they would have a special enmity towards Amalek, more specifically against Agog, and Amalek towards Saul's family line due to what we just read in 1 Samuel 15. So here in Esther, this connection is established between Haman and Mordecai that will soon extend to all the Jewish people. And the connection is that of eternal enemies that only ends when one or the other of those two races is 100% wiped out. And wouldn't you just know it? 
this Haman fellow was not only made part of King Xerxes' royal court, he was elevated to a place of precedence over all the other king's officials. Thus says verse 2, When the king's servants would appear at the king's gate, they would kneel and bow before Haman, but not Mordecai. He stubbornly refused, even knowing he was breaking the king's orders and all Persian protocol and refusing to acknowledge him on status. Notice once again the meeting place that we hear about is where? The king's gate. And that the people who were there are called the king's servants and Mordecai. This rather cements my contention that the king's gate was essentially off limits to all but the king's officials and servants and so the presence of Mordecai indicates he was indeed one of the king's officials or servants. But why would Mordecai bow before Haman? I mean, verse says, verse 4 says that the others of the king's servants were astonished that he wouldn't do this. And so when they inquired why he wouldn't explain, his only answer was, he's a Jew. Next week, we'll see why the seeming personal matter between Mordecai and Haman escalates highly. And we're going to talk some more about what being a Jew has to do with Mordecai refusing to show respect to Haman and it's not going to be what you think it is.